from the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. First on the program is Professor Emeritus and award-winning author Dan Flores. Flores recently released a new book titled Wild New World, the epic story of animals and people in America. You might also know his name from his books, American Serengeti and the New York Times bestselling Coyote America. Well, Wild New World explores and celebrates the wildlife that arose on our continent and introduces the complex human cultures and individuals who have hastened their eradication. Then, to further this conversation, environmental and science journalist Michelle Nyhouse discusses her most recent book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. In the late 19th century, some people came to realize that our rapid industrialization and globalization were driving animal species to extinction. As a result, movements to protect and conserve them were born. In Beloved Beasts, Nyhouse traces the movement's history, from early battles to save charismatic species like lions, elephants, and whales, to today's global effort to protect and preserve wildlife on a larger interconnected scale. Environmental awareness and education that's what this green earth is all about stay with us welcome to this green earth a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment i'm chris cherniak i'm Nell larson and joining us for the first part of the show is dan flores he is the ab hammond professor emeritus of western history at the University of Montana. He's also the author of the books Coyote America and American Serengeti. And he's here to, uh, this morning to talk about his new book, Wild New World, the epic story of animals and people in America. Dan, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you so much to you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, a uh, lot, to, lot to talk about uh, with your new book. I thought we, Nell and I always like to start with some definition of terms or make sure we understand the <laughs> background behind uh, the conversation we're about to have. So I thought maybe we'd start here. When you, when you talk about America and, um, you know, North America or so, what is it that you're uh, describing? Is it the continental U.S.? Does it go beyond that? Give us a little sense of the, the lay of the land, literally, when you talk about this area. Sure. Well, uh, I'm an American historian. Uh, so uh, when I defined my terms uh, as far as the geography of, of the book, uh, I was thinking specifically of the part of North America that becomes the United States. Now, mm-hmm. To be sure, in the early part of the book, uh, I have to spend a good bit of time on uh, what becomes Canada eventually. And Alaska, of course, is in the story in the mix from the very beginning. But um, mostly this is a book about the big history, the long-term history of the part of North America that becomes the United States. Okay. And then... Given that, what kind of time frame are you uh, addressing? How far back do we go? What is the, and what does that setting look like, uh, pre-people per se? Right, and and of course there is a long stretch of time right. uh, uh, where people are not a part of uh, North American ecology. But uh, I start this book uh, 66 million years ago with the asteroid impact that uh, 
wipes out the dinosaurs. Uh, all of us know about that. Uh, not everybody knows that that is uh, being commonly referred to these days as the Chicxulub impact. Chicxulub being the name of the Mayan town on the, the north uh, stretches of the Yucatan Peninsula near where this uh, this impact took place 66 million years ago. But I started there um, and spent a chapter talking about the consequences of that impact because I want to use it as a way to sort of start uh, the hard drive of North America over again and describe how uh, our continent acquires its great bestiary of animals, some of which evolve here over the subsequent uh, many millions of years, uh, others of which migrate from, particularly from Asia, whenever there are land bridges connecting North America and uh, the Eurasian continent, uh, we end up acquiring animals like mammoths and mastodons uh, and bison. But we also, as I said, we produce uh, in North America uh, uh, our own evolutionary uh, kind of contribution to the world bestiary, and it includes a lot of animals that people don't really think of as American, frankly. Uh, horses, for example, right. evolved here 56 million years ago, and were here down to about eight or 9,000 years ago, at which point they became extinct in North America while surviving elsewhere in the world. Camels were another uh, species that evolved in North America and ended up surviving elsewhere. But we also produce the great uh, concentration of canids, all the wolves, jackals, coyotes of the world had their origins in North America about 5.3 million years ago. And some of them ended up spreading to other parts of the world while others like coyotes uh, remained in North America and never left. So starting the story back that far is an attempt to describe how we acquire our our birds, our mammals, and our reptiles, that when humans finally get here, uh, we think now probably as early as 23,000 years ago, at least a few straggler human groups may have gotten here that early, they encountered a bestiary of animals that was part of this ancient legacy of the continent. And uh, that's sort of where my story really kicks into gear with the emergence of humans as another species of animal in Africa who finally get here 23,000 years ago. It's so interesting. And I mean, it's just a little bit mind blowing for us now to think about camels being here in the U.S. or elephants or whatever these other species are. What did the climate look like at the time? Was it, you know, comparable to now or just completely different? Well, by the time humans arrived, we were in the depths of the last ice age. Um, the Wisconsin ice age uh, reached its, uh, its maximum at about 19,000 uh, years ago. And humans got here, at least those first uh, few groups got here just before that. Um, and North America, in terms of its, uh, its climate was obviously a much colder place in the depths of the ice age. But as that last ice age began uh, to subside about 16,000 years ago, 
um, it began to look more and more like the continent that we would recognize today, except with a set of animals that are no longer here. All of our great charismatic creatures from ancient America were still on hand uh, when humans arrived, or almost all of them. And so it was a, it was a world that would have looked to the, these first human arrivals much more like the Africa from which they had come. Not that I, I think that uh, many of them, many of the humans who got here remembered much about Africa because that had been 40,000 years or, or 30,000 years in our past since we had left. But this American world was a, a quite a similar world to Africa with elephants, with big hunting cats, uh, with uh, animals that looked like antelope, uh, the, uh, the uh, pronghorns that mm. we still have today and their ancestors, uh, big jaguars, great big large uh, predatory and carrion eating birds, uh, very much like California condors today, which are also on the scene. So it's a, it's a different world, but I would say that the differences are lie mostly in the animals themselves rather than in the climate or uh, certainly the topography of the continent, which was quite similar to what we live in right now. Hence the, the title of your one of your books, American Serengeti, Cheap Plug, <laughs> right? <laughs> Indeed so. So, okay, so humans, let's say, quote unquote, you know, arrive uh, what, tens of thousands of years ago, and they are living in a world that, like you say, looks more like Africa, uh, including elephants. I want to want to pause there. You mentioned them, elephants or, or, or some uh, variety of elephants or mastodons were roaming about the continental U.S., Absolutely. Uh, they were found uh, from uh, Alaska to southern Arizona. Wow. Uh, so, ele yes, elephants were everywhere. Mastodons were the, uh, the browsing version that tended to be found primarily east of the Mississippi River, although there were populations of mastodons in the high mountains of the Rockies, too. But uh, mammoths, uh, at least three different types were found almost all over America, particularly in areas where there were grasslands, because like modern elephants, uh, uh, to which mammoths are closely related, they're very closely related to Asian elephants, in fact, uh, mammoths were grazing animals, and so they were found primarily in open country. Uh, out on the Great Plains uh, was a prime habitat for mammoths, and many thousands of years ago when archaeologists and paleontologists finally began discovering the remains uh, of mammoths and the humans who hunted them and, uh, all together uh, in the same dig sites, those sites were largely out on the American Great Plains. So when you drive across places like uh, New Mexico or West Texas or Kansas or Eastern Colorado, just squint your eyes and try to imagine uh, a very African-like scene of herds of elephants <laughs> migrating across those vast grassy sweeps. Maybe down in the Salt Lake Valley? 
in and around the Great Salt Lake? If there was, no, there were absolutely mammoths uh, in Utah, and uh, in fact, one of the highest elevation archaeological sites or paleontolo uh, paleontological sites, I should say, that shows uh, a mammoth presence is in the in high up in the Wasatch at about ten thousand feet. Whoa. So there were definitely mammoths uh, in the Utah area. We're all looking at each other in the studio here, like, here wow, how City. cool is that? Yeah, yeah. So um, we've we've sort of set the scene, and we, as you said, we imagine this amazing, like, bestiary, these incredible, you know, group of animals. Then humans come on the scene, and what what is the, how does the dynamic shift? Well, so I, I try to, in Wild New World, I attempt to treat humans as another species of, of animal, which, of course, we are. And... Uh, try to describe, starting in Africa, uh, the role that humans play in the ecology of the ancient world. And um, we emerge, frankly, uh, by about two million years ago, two and a half million years ago, as carnivorous predators. I mean, that's how we become who we are, uh, as bands of predators who hunt animals and who are endlessly looking, which is what leads us to North America in the first place, we're endlessly looking for groups of animals that have never encountered humans before. So they're naive about us. I mean, mm -hmm. animals do not uh, automatically assume that human beings are a danger to them. It's something that has to be learned. This is called biological first contact. And so humans are led around the world in pursuit of places that other human beings haven't found yet and where the animals are still naive and easy to, to approach and easy to kill. So that's what leads us to North America. And although, as I said, there's evidence that some of us get here as far back as 23,000 years ago, the real migration, the large migration of humans out of Asia into America starts at about 15,000 years ago when the Ice Age begins to recede, and there is an ice-free corridor through the continent from Alaska down to basically southern Alberta and Montana. And the first large populations of people who spread all across North America and create, I mean, in my book, I refer to this first culture in North America that's coast to coast as Clovisia the Beautiful. It consists of people we know as the Clovis hunters mm. that are found from California and Alaska all the way to the Atlantic seaboard and Florida. I mean, they literally set up an original, uh, not a United States, but a counterpart that actually lasted longer than the United States has lasted so far. So wrap your mind around this. 13,000 years ago, we have a culture that stretches from one coast to the other that creates the first America. And these people are basically hunters of animals. And what ensues over the next few thousand years is uh, a fairly rapid drawdown of this grand diversity of creatures. Uh, I mean, one of the, uh, the bits of research that I did, and this is a book, obviously, that synthesizes an awful lot of material because it goes from 66 million years ago down basically to yesterday, to early 2022. But one of the things that I had to grapple with was 
how America got recreated by the arrival of humans. And there's very uh, little room for doubt that our first great alteration of the world was in wiping out many of these grand animals, not just in North America, but also in Europe and in a couple of other places in the world. So much so that uh, a 2018 article in the National Academy of Sciences argued that in our migrations out of Africa, across Siberia, into the Americas, we humans wiped out in the last 25 or 30,000 years about 300 mammal species, not to mention the birds and reptiles, but 300 mammal species. And that produced the loss of two and a half billion years of distinctive evolved genetics that we're likely not ever to get back. I mean, those authors in the Academy of Sciences argued that it would take several million years to reacquire that level of genetic diversity. So it was a massive simplification by humans who, as I said, sort of participated in the first grand alteration of planet Earth. I and mean, we think of today as climate change as being our great alteration of the Earth, but there was one that preceded it and it was the simplification of animal life around the globe. Hey, let, let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Dan Flores. He's the author of the new book, Wild New World, the epic story of animals and people in America. Dan, we got about five more minutes or so, and of course about 12 more questions. But, <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, you use the term wiped out, and, and uh, that's really what we humans did to you say some 300 different species um but in addition to kind of like just just killing these animals wiping them out we altered whole ecosystems which also had an impact too didn't we well yes there's no question i mean one of the things that happens when you take away keystone animals uh is that uh ecosystems tend sort of step by step to reorganize themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the things that happened in the wake of what's called the Pleistocene extinctions. And I'll just add to, uh, to what I've said about this. And I will also say, by the way, we've only gotten so far in discussing the book to the first, uh, the introduction in the first two chapters, because <laughs> all the rest of it is about basically the time since Europeans have, have been here. But I will say that one of the things that has helped us understand this and understand this whole story, I mean, I've built uh, much of my story around the new genomic science that has helped us not only uh, grapple with our early history as a species, when you log into 23andMe or Ancestry.com and put together uh, who you are as a, as a human being, that's based on ge genomic science, which has only been around now for a couple of decades, but it's completely transformed how we interpret not only the origins of many of the animals in North America, passenger pigeons, for example, jaguars, a whole host of them that I discuss in the book, but it also has helped us understand what happened to them. And one of the emerging realities of this first presence of humans in North America that we now understand is that 
it's not that they end up wiping out every animal in sight. It's more that they tend to assert enough of a presence that they drive populations of animals apart from one another. And in genetic isolation, we think, and the, there's a famous example of this, the last mammoths on Wrangell Island, which survived down to 4,000 years ago, eventually became extinct, not because people killed them or because the weather changed or anything, but because they suffered what's known as genomic meltdown. They didn't have enough biological diversity remaining to continue with healthy reproduction, and so they died out. And that's one of the things that we're beginning to think may have played a role in these early extinctions 12, 13,000 years ago, is that humans were exert, uh, exerting enough of a presence that they were driving populations of animals apart from one another and, and in isolation. They often didn't have sufficient genetic diversity to continue uh, into a healthy future for themselves. Well, with only a couple of minutes left, I, I want to shift um, a little bit later in time here. And, you know, we've talked a lot about extinction, but what about, you know, the opposite trend um, and some species recovery that we're seeing now? You know, do you see hope for other species in the face of our growing human population? Well, I uh, this book, as I have said, tracks through a very long period of time, and the great bulk of it, in fact, is about the last 500 years uh, of human history in North America, the last seven chapters or so, uh, and the epilogue is about uh, the more recent story. And so I carry the story up to uh, the modern period, and one of the things, of course, I discuss is the passage of the Endangered Species Act of 1973, which will have its 50th anniversary next year, by the way, in 2023. Um, that act followed on the heels of 400 years of uh, what I argue for various reasons, ideological ones uh, and economic ones primarily, produced in North America and what becomes the United States, the largest destruction of animals, of wildlife that's discoverable anywhere in, in world history. And we do it primarily because we see animals as commodities in a global market economy. So if you think about what happened to beaver, for example, what happened to sea otters and fur seals and buffalo, I mean, all of those animals and passengers pigeons too were wiped out primarily because they were seen as commodities like like gold or silver or trees or something except these of course were living creatures so in the 1970s as part of the great uh, ecological revolution of the 60s and 70s we passed the kind of the, the grand uh, piece of legislation of that period the endangered species act that attempts and I think does so quite successfully to reverse this 400 year trend in American history. It's kind of an example, I think that uh, climate change uh, ought to, people who hope for some action on behalf of climate change ought to take heart from because it proves 50 years ago that we could rise to the occasion and come up with a Hail Mary to try to stop the destruction of the world around us. I mean, this was a time when frankly saving the world was not political so 
1973, when the Endangered Species Act was passed, out of 482 votes cast in the two houses of Congress, only 12 votes were cast against the Endangered Species Act. Wow. So it has enabled us as a country to do better than almost anywhere else in the world. And of course, we're living right now with, uh, with all of this playing out around us. Uh, I would say that the one that we're all most familiar with is the recovery of wolves in America, uh, which has been going on uh, since the middle 1990s. Uh, and of course, is, has become a political kind of football in a lot of the American West. But we've done something that is really remarkable. And, and that gives me hope for, mm. uh, for what we might be able to do in the face of climate change. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Now and I always like to end <laughs> our conversations with hope. Yes, so, that's um, so inspiring. Yeah, yes, I like that perspective. Thank, Thank goodness you. the Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973 because there, if it was today, there would be a lot more than 12 votes uh, against it. <laughs> uh, but that's yes, another conversation yes. for another time, Dan. Dan Flores is the A.B. Hammond Professor Emeritus of Western History at the University of Montana. He's also the author of the books Coyote America and American Serengeti and the new book, uh, Wild New World, The Epic Story of Animals and People in America. Dan, real quick, a website people can go to to learn more about you and your works? Well, uh, you can quickly go to, uh, I have a Wikipedia page that's uh, that's fairly complete, and of course Amazon. Uh, uh, I have a, an author page on Amazon that describes all my books. This Wild New World is my eleventh oh. book, so there have been some that have preceded it, uh, and they're all uh, there, all still in print, and all there on the Amazon author page. Fantastic! You know what, Dan? Take the holidays off at least. Uh, <laughs> start your new book in 2023, and we. We will definitely be in touch. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on this. Thank program. you. My pleasure. All right. Let's take a break for uh, underwriters. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with. We'll be speaking with author Michelle Nyhouse, the uh, author of the new book, Beloved Beasts. It's this green earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now uh, on the phone for the second part of the show is Michelle Nyhouse. She's the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Hi, good morning. Great to be here. Well, um, it's a fascinating book, and we're really excited to talk to you about it. Um, you know, in the book, you you talk about the modern conservation movement and and the people that built it and the history of it. When when did this start? Like, how do you define the conservation movement and when that um, started? Yeah, great question, and one that I spent a lot of time wrestling with in the course <laughs> of writing the book. Um, so I I wanted to make sure I was distinguishing um, the movement that I was writing about from the kinds of conservation work that people have done, you know, since since the beginning of human history, uh, people have always, I think, um, paid some attention to the species that they depended on for survival and how those species were doing. But but really the, the modern conservation movement started in the late 19th century in Europe and North America when people realized kind of belatedly that human activities 
could drive species globally extinct. Um, people had not really considered that humans could be as destructive as that. They sort of thought species are creations of God and they're going to endure forever no matter what mm. we do. And mm -hmm. um, and people woke up to the idea that, wow, extinction is possible and it, it could be our fault and, and we need to uh, do something to prevent it. The famous story of the, the passenger pigeon, I think that we all mm. learned probably at an early age, it hit that home. It seemed like maybe there was a, a thought that um, these these species as resources were sort of inexhaustible. Like mm -hmm. like people couldn't possibly, you know, uh, make this these vast numbers of species extinct. Was that the thought? Yeah, and and in a way you can understand it. I mean, because yeah. people were you know, in, no matter where they lived, but but especially in North America, uh, though, of course, people had been inhabiting North America for a long time, they hadn't been in very great numbers. And, and there were just huge numbers of not only passenger pigeons, but, you know, large charismatic animals like the bison. And there are all these stories about how, you know, while passenger pigeons, you know, darkened the sun, right. uh, the bison, herds of bison darkened the land. And, you know, it's yeah. easy for people to say, well, we're just puny humans, you know, what damage could we possibly do? And the answer was, well, a lot, especially when there's lots of humans and there's lots of, in the case of the bison, there's a big profit motive. Um, and, you know, within the course of a few decades, the bison had gone from darkening the land to just a few dozen animals left outside, um, left, you know, free roaming on the prairie. Right. I mean, I'm also thinking about those uh, iconic images of in the late 1800s when women walked around with hats literally made mm -hmm. of birds, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah. like, what's, the, what's a few Carolina parakeets between, you know, friends and, and <laughs> egrets and feathers and stuff? And, but you, like you say, it, it, it would slowly eat away, literally eat away at not only the, the populations themselves, but the ecosystems too, as as population, I'll, I'll focus on say North America, as populations grew here in the continental U.S., we start to fill in their habitat, their wetland systems, we level their far their forests, their lands, and exactly. so not only are we are we killing them directly, we're killing them indirectly by destroying their habitat. Exactly, and I mean, really, the work of the conservation movement from the start has been to connect people with the consequences of their consumer decisions because as you know as these trade when you when you are um you know living locally and and hunting for your food you can see the consequences of of what you're what you're consuming but when you're buying hats that are made on the other side of the continent or on the other side of the ocean you don't necessarily see that oh no you know in order to put this beautiful egret feather on my hat um a bunch of egret chicks were abandoned and as you say you know their habitat was destroyed and so the conservation movement worked very hard to make those connections and and you know while it has failed in many cases it has also had great successes and i think the movement against um feathered hats right was extremely successful in that right. it ended in passing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is something that we still um, depend on to protect our songbird populations yeah. and our, our wetland bird populations. And, and there are many, many species that we almost certainly would not have today were it not for 
the people, many of them women who stood up and said, hey, have you thought about where that hat comes from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> have you thought about what's really happening in this faraway place that, you know, may seem like it has nothing to do with your life, but actually has a lot to do with um, the ecosystems that support these birds and support human beings? One, one of the things that I think is so fascinating that your your book really highlights or just like brings to light is how much the conservation movement has changed over the years. And um, you share the story of the taxidermist and the bison. And <laughs> it's like, it's almost comical if it weren't tragic, but, mm -hmm. but um, would you kind of share what the conservation or that the, those early ideas of conservation versus how that's shifted to now? Mm. Yeah. Um, and it really is interesting to look back um, over the, the decades and see how our thinking has changed. And, and in a way it's really encouraging progress can be made. <laughs> um, you know, when people, when the conservation movement started, like I said, people were just reacting really in shock to the idea that these very abundant animals that they lived alongside could, could be driven extinct by human activities. And so it was a very, um, I mean, it was very difficult work they were doing, but in a way it was a simple mission. They were trying to get people to stop shooting so many animals. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, you mentioned the taxidermist and the bison, ironically, in, in, in some cases, the people were, uh, were also participating in this destruction in the sense that they were hunters themselves, often wealthy sport hunters who wanted to see their sport continue. You know, they didn't want people to stop shooting animals entirely, especially in the case of the bison. They wanted to preserve their ability um, to hunt on the prairie and, and protect these species that I think they genuinely loved and admired. So, but, you know, that was kind of a simplistic way of thinking about conserving species because of course species live in habitats and they depend on other species. So if you really want to protect a species, um, a thriving population of a species, you have to protect its relationships. Um, you can't just, you know, keep it safe from, from people shooting it. So um, as the science of ecology grew up, the conservation movement grew up along with it. And I think, you know, now we have learned so much more about what species need to survive alongside of us and, um, you know, what other species they need in order to survive, what kind of habitats they need. And I think that is a real accomplishment of the conservation movement. What we are now learning is that humans are also part of that, those ecosystems that we need to play a role in them. We need to not only, you know, wall species off from ourselves, but we need to get better at living sustainably alongside of them. So I think rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable relationship when it's possible between species and our own species is really the essential work, the essential challenge of the conservation movement going forward. You also address that there has historically um, and continues to be this darker side of conservation um, with, you know, racism and colonialism and, um, and I would, I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about like how, wh why that came to be such like this, this piece of the conservation movement in the early years and, and how, you know, is that changing? Yeah. And that was something that was very, it was very difficult to grapple with in the course of the book, but I found it very rewarding because I've been a, I've been an environmental journalist for a long time. I have known that, you know, the conservation movement had a dark history. Um, I've acknowledged it in my writing many different ways, but I've never really looked at 
okay, why is this happening? And, and what can we, you know, why is there this systemic history in, in a conservation movement, in this movement that's really about, you know, protecting life, it's really a compassionate movement. Um, yeah. and, and what can we do about that history? So, so, I mean, what I, what I learned is that, you know, this is a movement that started in Europe and North America in, in wealthy circles of people who, you know, had the time and, and the social capital to, to say things that were rather controversial at the time. And um, they were able to accomplish a lot, but they also infused the movement with their worldview, which tended to be pretty uh, elitist, um, in some cases, racist and sexist, certainly classist. And, and I think we still see traces of that attitude today in the sense that the conservation movement has has for a long time defaulted to top-down solutions. Like the answer is, let's establish a park, let's mm. um, pass a law. And of course, I mean, I'm not going to say that those things aren't necessary. Like I said, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act saved a whole bunch of birds. But the missing piece is working with people to live alongside other species. Um, the grassroots work that leads to a society um, developing what Aldo Leopold called a conservation ethic, um, because of course laws help, but if people themselves don't support the laws, if they're constantly trying to violate them, uh, they're not very effective. So that to me is, there's of course, you know, a, a huge moral cost to the, the racism and sexism that we see expressed by individuals and in some cases by groups within the conservation movement. But there's also this very practical cost um, that's holding the movement back. The legacy of that, I think, is holding the movement back from what it could be. Um, it could be a much broader um, movement that's really helping society become better citizens of its own ecosystems. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with author and science journalist Michelle Nyehaus uh, about her most recent book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Yeah, Michelle, the names that come up are the usual, I'll say the usual suspects, <laughs> that, like T Teddy Roosevelt and, and John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, Aldo Leopold, you mentioned uh all conservationists and all had a big part in helping to, at a minimum, bring awareness and education uh, and the importance of uh, preserving, uh, conserving ecosystems, wildlife, etc. Who would you say today, either individuals or institutions, organizations that are playing major roles in helping to continue to foster this mindset? Uh, and, and are they and do they have to do their work a little differently these days? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed, um, as you know, some of the names you mentioned, these are very complex characters um, in, in a, you know, complex in ways that sometimes aren't acknowledged. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was undeniably um, did things that protected really important places and species we still value. Mm -hmm. He also... Uh, you know, was supportive of eugenics, and mm -hmm. he had a lot of very elitist, um, exclusionary attitudes about people of other races and other national origins. So I think it's important to see these people in their full complexity and learn what we can from them, both 
things that we want to take from them and the things that we want to do very differently <laughs> today. Sure. So I think happily, um, you know, there, there of course are still, uh, as I said, that, that legacy of, you know, very wealthy elitist leaders, you know, they're, there, that still exists in conservation. Um, but the the trend that I see that really gives me hope is that there is a rising, um, ri there's the rising power of the grassroots. And by that, I mean, uh, there's a really vibrant movement of indigenous and rural communities around the world that are, uh, that are talking on a much larger platform than they once did about the value of indigenous-led conservation efforts, community-led conservation efforts that are making, you know, a huge difference in terms of protecting other species and really deserve this, the support of these more quote-unquote traditional conservation movements that are, you know, the, the descendants of Teddy Roosevelt and some of the conservation leaders from the last century. And I think there's a wide recognition within those more those conservation groups whose names we all recognize, the Sierra Club, Audubon Society, and so forth, there's a recognition among the people who work within those organizations that they do one of their really important and and you know neglected roles is to support people of all walks of life who are doing conservation on the ground, um, who are saving species every day just by the way they go about their daily lives. And that to me is a really hopeful trend. I don't think it's happening fast enough, mm. but it is happening. And that that's very encouraging to me. Sort of on, I don't know, maybe it's the, the opposite end of the spectrum of sort of everyday projects or everyday support of these species. There have been some like truly extraordinary efforts made to save individual species um, like the whooping crane or the black rhino or, and, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you would just maybe choose one of these that resonated with you and, and share that story with us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I think these are, these are stories that get maybe an outsized amount of attention because they're so dramatic and they're, yeah. you know, they involve individual people who dedicate decades to, to um, protecting individual, often very charismatic species. But mm -hmm. I am not denying the power of those stories because I got to spend some time with um, people at the San Diego Zoo who are working on advanced reproductive technologies to protect to you know, rescue really genetically rescue a subspecies um, of rhino that is incredibly endangered. There are only I think now two left mm -hmm. alive, and they are trying to um, you know do some things with with um, other subspecies to perhaps um, produce uh, rhinos rhinos of this very endangered subspecies um, through surrogate. Uh, reproduction. So I was visiting this lab and, and I was thinking about all these ethical questions, you know, is this the right thing to do? Why are we doing this? Is this where we should be putting our efforts? And I, I walked up to the fence where the rhinos and their, their moms and dads are and, and a baby rhino, which is of course a huge animal came up to me and kind of nuzzled against me and my heart just melted, you know, <laughs> oh, a baby rhino. <laughs> so I will never say that those things should not be done. Um, they're very powerful educationally. And I think those technologies that are being developed, you know, are 
it's good for us to have them available because we will continue to have these emergencies of you know just grievously endangered species that we want to keep with us um, and we may need to go to these great expensive lengths but i do think they get overemphasized in the news because what we really need to be doing yeah. is is protecting species while they're still common you know while they're still healthy in their habitats we need to be doing things to to um, help them stay that way because that is not only the most effective means of conservation it's also the cheapest um, it's very unlikely that we will we will ever have we may be able to save a few um, members of that subspecies of rhino but it's very unlikely that we're ever going to have a healthy population again it's it's um just a long shot scientifically and financially and practically um, so I don't want I I again want those efforts to continue but I don't want them to be treated as a cure-all or a magic bullet or, or seen as such. Uh, we have, we know how to protect habitats, um, and there's a lot of things we could do that we're just not doing. Right. The whole point is to is to avoid getting to this point in the first yeah. place where there are where there are two left or whatever. I'm I'm curious. You, yeah. know, you mentioned so much about the you know like there's so much attention that goes to these like charismatic, mm-hmm. super charismatic species. Um, you know, how do people connect or engage with those that aren't so um, charismatic, like like insects or um, yeah. some of these smaller mammals that make less of a splash? <laughs> well, I think um, it's, you know, I, I, I understand why conservation organizations often have, you know, a flagship species that that people gravitate to. And, and perhaps we are hardwired. Um, in some way to feel closer to our fellow mammals than we do to say arthropods. Um, but I think it, it for those who take the time to look more deeply, there is you know a huge amount of wonder and beauty to be found in smaller, less charismatic species. And I think, as people become more ecologically literate, as they understand, you know what's the role of these perhaps you know kind of scary or boring looking or or unpleasant looking um, creatures, what's their role in in the ecosystems that we depend on too? I think that sense of wonder only increases because, you know, some of them are just, are so incredibly important to us in ways we are just beginning to understand. Uh, So I think that it's okay for us to have favorites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's perhaps, un, you know, that's perhaps inevitable. Um, right. And and perhaps, you know, the, the fuzzy, beautiful creatures are, are an entry point for mm-hmm. people. Um, but I think there is beauty to be found uh, throughout the, you know, throughout the, the natural world. And, and that we, I do see people embracing that more and more. And to me, that's a, and I think that's because people are understanding the importance of these relationships among species, as I, well as the importance of species themselves. I, I, yeah. I agree. I was just going to yeah. say that I think uh, we're doing a better job at understanding, like you say, the relationships or interconnectedness mm-hmm. between not just species, but uh, a species and their habitat. You know, I mean, <clears throat> yeah. you know, quite honestly, no milkweed, no monarch. And as you know, we mm-hmm. can we can spend all day all you know, uh, 52 weeks a year trying to save the monarch. But if we don't understand that we have to save the milkweed too, there will be no monarch. So that interconnected yeah. understanding and appreciating the interconnectedness between one species to another or a species and its habitat um, is, is uh, I don't know, improving or 
becoming better understood and appreciated. Yeah, I think so. And and to me, that is that is one of several really hopeful trends in conservation. And, you know, conservation work is is, you know, sometimes can feel like it's just saturated with tragedy because there are so many losses. Mm-hmm. But I think the historical perspective, um, there's a lot of hope to be found in the historical perspective because you can see what we've learned. You can see what people of all different walks of life have have managed to accomplish over the the past decades and and you recognize there's still so many opportunities uh for humans to do right by other species all right i'll i'll give you that (laughs) i'll I'll be (laughs) i'm i I will i will also say i'm less hopeful when it comes to a lot of humans uh in trying (laughs) to do the right thing um for sure there are eight billion of us now remember So, That's for uh, sure. It's an ongoing. But hey, Go ahead. I do think that uh, I do think that the conservation movement, uh, speaking of that, tends to jump to that conclusion a little more quickly than mm. they need to. Um, and I mean, I give you that. Like every time I'm in a traffic jam, I just despair yes. <laughs> about myself and my fellow humans. I think, ah, oh, what a plague we are. But um, <laughs> but you know, and so I'm certainly not denying that. We cause we've caused just unbelievable destruction. But I think you know we've been informed by this idea of the tragedy of the commons, yeah. um, you know that was mm-hmm. that was articulated by a ecologist in the 1960s who said you know humans just whenever they're given free reign over a resource they're just going to use it up until it's gone. Um, we're just not capable of managing ourselves and. The Nobel Prize-winning economist Eleanor Ostrom, who's far less well known than the idea of the tragedy of the commons, you know, spent her career finding out that there's all kinds of examples of communities that have done the opposite, you know, that have figured out how to live, you know, have developed their own rules and figured out how to live uh, sustainably with the resources they have access to, and and so I think. Yes, right. yeah. <laughs> yes, and right. um, <laughs> there are there are models that we can look to and say, all right, this seems impossible. So much damage has been done, but look at what this community has accomplished. Right. Can we learn from that? Okay. Well, I I love that perspective, and it is the perfect place for us to wrap up because we do have to do that. Um, Michelle Nyehouse, author of Beloved Beasts: Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us where we can find your book. You can find it wherever books are sold. Um, (laughs) It is out in paperback and uh, available for all the holiday gifts you may need to buy. Perfect timing. Thanks Thanks. thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take Uh, care. Thank you, you too. A quick break. Last break, Underwriters. We'll be right back. It's the Screen Earth.